Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. A man named Clint Bobo woke up on April 13th to the sound of dogs barking, polluting the peaceful sanctuary of the morning hours. Incessantly, they barked. Ferociously, they coughed out their guttural warnings. At 7.50 a.m., Clint Bobo rose from bed and peered out his bedroom window where he saw his 20-year-old sister curiously kneeling on the pavement near their garage, wearing camouflage pants and a hat. A large man stood in front of her as she kneeled on the ground. They were arguing, or rather, he was berating her, looking down on her as the argument continued. The words were unclear, failing to cover the distance from where Holly knelt with the large man standing over her, to where Clint, trying to eavesdrop, watched from his bedroom window in the early morning hours. The only words Clint was able to make out were his sister as she exclaimed, No. Why? At first, Clint Bobo thought it was his sister's boyfriend, Drew Scott, and he assumed they were having a fight. In 2011, Holly Bobo was a nursing student attending the University of Tennessee. She was 20 years old, ambitious, headstrong, and eyes set on the future. Holly had woken up early that morning at roughly 4 a.m. to begin studying for an exam, while her boyfriend Drew Scott was supposedly out hunting turkeys nearby in the dawnlight hours of that same morning. Clint assembling the pieces in that groggy morning freshly woken state, it made sense to him that Drew would have dropped by to visit her, see how studying had gone and wish her well for the day. What Clint didn't know was that minutes before he had woken up and looked out the window, seeing his sister kneeling before the large man, at roughly 7.46, one of the neighbors had heard screams and called Karen Bobo, Clint and Holly's mother, while she was at work. Clint quickly discovered what the screams had been about. Frantically, Karen Bobo dialed her son Clint. On the phone, the truth was divulged. The man standing above Clint's kneeling sister, Holly, was in fact not Holly's boyfriend Drew Scott at all. The man just outside their home was a stranger. Karen told her son to try and help Holly, and to punctuate the urgency of the moment, Karen said, That's not Drew. Get a gun and shoot him. But Clint hesitated. He'd just woken up. He was still coming to grips with the day ahead of him. The words moved sluggishly in his mind, as they would for many of us. The sleep still clung to the corner of his eyes, and unwilling to kill a man if he was uncertain, Clint instead decided to take a closer look. He stood staring at the man, rubbing his eyes squinting. It wasn't Drew. Drew didn't have that deep, gravelly voice, not like this man outside his home at least. In the mere minutes it took Clint to make his determination to move closer towards action, the man began to walk Holly into the wooded area near the Bobo family home. Clint threw back the covers as sleep finally relinquished its control on his reactions, and grabbed a loaded pistol and ran out of the house after his sister, but he was unable to find them. 
He did, however, see blood on the pavement beside Holly's car. There had been violence. There had been physicality. It hadn't just been an argument, a heated exchange. There had been violence. Clint quickly dialed 911, communicating to police what he'd seen and what he'd been told about the situation as he wasn't exactly sure what was happening himself. Karen Bobo, Clint and Holly's mother, also attempted to contact police earlier before Clint, based on their neighbor's call. But she was working as a teacher in a nearby county and was unable to reach the right police dispatch. That then dominoed into a delay in how quickly police were able to respond to the call and attend the scene. Then both Clint and Karen tried to call Holly on her cell phone after 8 a.m., but were unable to reach her. At roughly 8.10 a.m., the Bobo home had police cars parked haphazardly outside at both in the driveway and on the road as they rushed to begin searching for Holly. It was still fairly dark outside. The sun hadn't completely ascended above the horizon, and there were no traces that police could find leading them to Holly's whereabouts. Not in the dark, at least. Later, once the paperwork had been handled, they were able to track the pings on her cell phone. Holly had, or at least Holly's phone had, headed north before she disappeared. And with the blood beside her car, coming back from the forensics lab, as definitively hers, police now knew, as well as Karen and Clint, that Holly had been taken by force. As is usually the case, police started looking for potential suspects. Those suspicions were then raised against a man named Terry Britt, but they weren't just a blind shot in the dark. Terry was a serial rapist living nearby. His preferences were that of young blondes, just like Holly. And he also matched the description that Clint provided the police based on what he had seen at the distance through his bedroom window. It was also made aware to police that shortly before Holly was taken into the woods, Terry had made an effort to change his appearance. He'd cut his long hair short. Effort began to pile in an attempt to find the truth behind Terry's terrible actions. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigation went so far as to wiretap his home. In an interrogation with investigators, both Terry and his wife had provided the alibi that they were both at their own residence at the time of the abduction, installing a new bathtub. But that alibi didn't appear credible for various reasons. It had been documented that Terry's wife had gone with him in the past while he stalked past victims, meaning she would be keen to cover for him and substantiate an alibi. Terry and his wife had produced a receipt for the purchase of the bathtub, but it was curiously handwritten, and the shop that they had supposedly purchased it from had no record of ever selling that tub to the couple. And then the last reason, the alibi was deemed suspicious. A handprint had been found on Holly's car, one which they reasonably thought had been left by the abductor. Forensics determined it wasn't a perfect match to Terry's handprint, but it was also inconclusive and they weren't able to rule him out. Because of these reasons, police worked towards being granted a search warrant for Terry's home. But once they'd been granted and executed the warrant, police were unable to find anything within the home to time to Holly's abduction, which inevitably meant police had to begin looking in other directions. But it also meant police had lost precious time. Fortunately, there seemed to be no shortage of suspects in the case as six new main suspects were also quickly identified and explored. First, the police began looking into two brothers, Zach and Dylan Adams. 
that was because Dylan was arrested on an unrelated weapons charge, and he also had a mental disability. Dylan was somewhat literate, being able to read at a basic comprehensive level, but was also unable to perform other simple tasks like determining the time displayed on a clock. It was while he was in custody on the weapons charge that police received a tip that he might have been involved in the kidnapping of Holly Bobo. Now, creeps, I understand the optimistic outlook, that police feel immense pressure to come to a conclusion or resolution or to save the day. But I also know that police also feel the immense pressure to come to a conclusion or resolution so as to absolve themselves of any doubt in the community that they were unable to perform their duties. And in other cases, it's just pure ego. What I am about to tell you next is unacceptable, no matter how you view or feel about the police. As a result of the tip, indicating that Dylan might have been involved in the abduction, police began to apply enormous pressure on Dylan to tell them anything he knew about Holly Bobo or where she might be. Dylan, who had a mental disability, was confused and disoriented, stumbling over words unsure of what exactly they were talking to him about. But, as if we humans never learn from mistakes of the past, police continued to pressure Dylan until he confessed to police on April 13th. According to Dylan, or rather, as the general public receives information according to police, on the day Holly was abducted, Dylan had traveled to his brother Zach's home to get his truck. When he arrived, Holly was in his brother's living room wearing a pink t-shirt. His brother, Zach, was wearing camouflage pants. And then there was also another man in the room, Jason Wayne Autry, who was standing nearby. Dylan also told police that while he was at Zach's home, Zach told him about a video he had just filmed, where in its contents he forced himself on Holly. But as one would assume, with a mentally disabled suspect who had undergone the emotional trauma usually reserved for more cunning suspects. The details were inconsistent with the evidence gathered and as such were useless and never presented in court. After Dylan's lawyer got involved and with his assistance, Dylan recanted his confession saying that detectives had driven the narrative and coerced him into giving a false confession. No matter how much I disagree with the methods of extracting a dubious confession, one bit of information did lead police to their next lead, and that was the mention of the sexual assault video that led them to Jeffrey and Mark Piercy. The connection to Jeff and Mark had been made when a woman named Sandra King, who used to be Jeff's roommate, claimed that he had shown her the video of Holly Bobo being assaulted, and that it was, in fact, Mark who had been the one to stand there with the camera in hand and film it. With the assistance of police, Sandra King, with police listening in and recording, called Jeff where she calmly stated to him, that video of Holly, if it had been you, I would have watched it. And in a chilling response, Jeff said, I know. As a result of that call, as well as additional investigative work in 2014, three years after Holly was abducted, Jeffrey, as well as Mark, were apprehended, arrested, and charged on counts of accessory after the fact, as well as tampering with evidence in the Holly Bobo case. Police quickly set in with Jeffrey in custody and began to interrogate him. Jeff claimed that he hadn't been able to hear what Sandra had said during the call police had been listening in on, hence his vague and obtuse response. 
Detectives were reasonably unwilling to take him at his word, as one can expect, and searched over 20 cell phones looking for the supposed video but were unable to locate it. And as such, the charges against both Jeff and Mark were dropped. But there had been an additional person who'd been in contact with Dylan and Zach Adams on the day of Holly's disappearance, and that person, being their sixth main suspect, was a man named Shane Austin. But that was a short-lived avenue of investigation. Shane passed a polygraph test, but police continued to badger him. The community's trust in the police department had been shaken, and they needed to make headway or perhaps they felt a moral obligation to bring a resolution to the case for the Bobo family. But either way, the techniques employed by police, their witch hunt, against Shane Austin, tragically led to his suicide. The main reason stated for his suicide was the stress he'd felt in the prospect of going to jail for a crime he had no part in. The leaves began to fall in September of 2014, three years after Holly had been walked into the woods and never seen again. In those early fall days, a group of people were out searching for ginseng, illegally trespassing on private land in northern Decatur County, Tennessee. If you're unaware, the risk is worth the reward for some individuals, as ginseng is referred to as green gold. While pushing through the woods, examining their surroundings, hoping to find a stashed away patch of ginseng of that green gold, one of the men in the daring trespassing group found instead a bucket. When he turned it over, spilling its contents on the ground, what tumbled out was a human skull with a bullet hole in it as well as a few ribs and one shoulder blade. Forensics took custody of the bones, and they came back as the remains of Holly Bobo. As a result of finding those remains, the Adams brothers, as well as Jason Autry, were taken in for questioning and confronted with the remains. And finally, Jason Autry confessed. Jason told police that he had indeed been an accessory to the murder of Holly Bobo, but that he hadn't harmed her. Dylan's coerced confession where he stated Holly had been in Zach Adams' living room was indeed false, according to Jason. And also, according to Jason Autry, Shane Austin's suicide had nothing to do with the harsh treatment of the police. Jason informed police that Shane Austin had also been involved in the abduction, but because he'd passed a polygraph and was already deceased, no charges at the time were brought against him. Allegedly, Jason Autry had traveled to Shane Austin's home for the sole purpose of buying drugs. When he arrived, he walked into a scene where Shane, as well as Dylan and Zach, were destroying evidence of the abduction. While Holly Bobo's body lay under a blanket in the back of Zach's truck, Jason Autry told police that the three men, Dylan, Zach, and Shane, had drugged Holly and taken turns sexually assaulting her. They then asked him to assist them in getting rid of the body, and Jason foolishly agreed. Together they drove Zach's truck to a bridge near the Tennessee River, and there intended to gut Holly's body, hoping to prevent it from floating back up to the surface and being found once they dumped it into the river below. But that's when Holly gave out a low, pained groan and moved her leg. Holly Bobo wasn't dead. Not yet. Jason began scanning the area for witnesses, finding the area devoid of unwanted eyes. He gave Zach the go-ahead. 
At the signal, Zack leveled the gun at her head and shot her through the cheekbone with a pistol. Then the four men heard a boat approaching from down the river. They panicked and put the body in the back of the truck, deciding rather to dump her somewhere else. Jason Autry was then dropped off by the brothers near their home before they continued out to Decatur County where they disposed of Holly. But why had someone been at the Bobo family home that morning three years before and who was it? Apparently, Zach Adams had shown up in his camouflage pants at Holly's home, and according to Jason, that was because he'd come to teach Clint Bobo how to cook methamphetamine. And that's when Holly denied him entry, and objected to the idea that her brother would become another roaming pathogen to a sickness infecting her community. Clint, when asked, denied this, and was never charged in court, but it does raise questions as to why he initially hesitated and if his accounts were truthful of the morning Holly went missing. That's when Zack decided that given the commotion she'd caused that they'd have to kidnap her, which eventually led to the sexual assault and murder. But the truth wasn't as simple as taking Jason's confession literally in every sense. Investigators determined that Shane, who'd killed himself due to the pressure of having a crime he did not commit pinned on him, had actually not been involved at all and that in his suicide letter he was being truthful. Jason Autry had taken his own actions in the crime and tried to lay them at the feet of a dead man to try to go unpunished. In 2017, all three men were convicted of the crime. Zach Adams received life in prison plus 50 years. Dylan Adams received 35 years in prison. And Jason Autry got a plea deal for his confession and only received eight measly years in prison. I could go over the court proceedings, but that isn't the story creeps. As is often the case, true crime is about the truth. It isn't about vindication and it isn't about wrathful justice, although some may take comfort in those things. It's ultimately about the truth. If you remember, I was critical of the police and their interrogation methods with a mentally disabled man and I stand by that. Time and time again, we see that those methods bring about false confessions. While Dylan was involved, had it not been for illegal ginseng hunters, we may never have been led back to the Adams Brothers or Jason Autry. Had it not been for that outside intervention, perhaps that bridge to the Adams Brothers and Jason Autry would have been burnt forever. The same thing applies in our day-to-day -day lives. It's impossible to get the truth or the right answer, if we aren't asking the right questions. So creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every 5-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, 
Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors. (laughs) 